I'm just delighted to be here again today with Lucas Van Oss. And uh, Lucas has a deep interest, as, I, as do I, in Wolfgang Smith. And so we thought we would do a few episodes on Wolfgang Smith. Now, Wolfgang Smith has written so many books that trying to tackle all of his ideas at once would just be impossible. So Lucas has an approach that he's going to come at today. And I might pop in with a few ideas later on, but I'm going to let Lucas get us started here. Yeah, so we're going to go a bit biographical because I always like to get the sense of, uh, of people like I just told you offline. So Wolfgang Smith was born in 1930 in Vienna. Um, I think it was a bit of a tough start for him. From, from what I understand, he escaped the, the Nazis and a Russian, Russian invasion. And eventually he got to the U.S. on a, on a merchant vessel. And at the early age of 15, this guy gets into Cornell and he does a triple major, philosophy, physics, and mathematics, which is, it's really unheard of from what I understand. Um, and at a young age, he already was exposed to Whitehead's work and he was really captivated by it. It really, it really set him thinking and it was an indication for him that it was something very important that he was reading. And he was really trying to understand the universe and applying to Cornell. He, he wrote down in his application that he thought that physics contained the, the keys to the universe or physics are the keys to the universe. Um, that was his motivation to get started, let's say. So he gets introduced to, to universities and after three years, he graduates and he gets offered a, a fellowship in philosophy at, at Cornell. So after and, three years, he's 18 years old. Yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah. Like this story, I, I heard it for the first time and I was like, who is this guy? Why have I never heard of him? Um, and thank you for whoever got him into the internet because it's just amazing to, uh, to get someone with this level. Anyway, he gets this, uh, this fellowship offered to him and three weeks in, he's extremely disappointed because as many people also in this little corner experience um, philosophy, it can be very dark, impersonal. Um, like Karen said on an earlier episode, I remember you saying most philosophers end up insane or, <laughs> or something like um, it's usually not a very bright route. And Wolfgang, he emphasizes that philosophy consists of etymologically consists of philos and Sophia, which is a love of wisdom. And he didn't experience it there. So three weeks in, he goes to the head of the philosophy department. And he's like, um, I haven't touched any money. I'm quitting. I'm going to be a lumberjack in Oregon. Like, <laughs> who does that? I just think that's such a, such a badass move. Um, and so he goes to Oregon. And his brother, he, uh, he learns about this. His brother at this time is at Purdue University. And he notifies the the physics department, if I'm not mistaken. And he's like, my brother's a little crazy, um, but he's very smart and he's very gifted. So can you please give him a chance? So if I'm correct, he got a assistant um, graduate. Job there. And eventually he went on because I got different um, answers from him on different podcasts. So that was quite interesting. Um, 
but he did that two years master in uh, in physics and it was a more positive experience because it gave him a foundation that that proved to be uh, very important now later on he works as an uh, aerodynamicist at bells what is it bells corporation and um he works on the re-entry problem this is something i don't understand but <laughs> it sounds very very impressive and he goes on to teach math at mit which is like also just wow uh ucla and eventually oregon now i think a very important part of his story that is that um already at a young age where he's at cornell like um when he's doing his triple major he's exposed to this little book and it's called gitanjali and it's it's hinduistic poetry and he reads that little book and he's basically set on fire so he's like there's something very special about this and throughout his academic career he gets this this incredible fascination for indian culture for the vedic religion for hinduism <clears throat> and eventually he takes a trip um between his stretch at mit and ucla he takes a trip of seven months to india and he's like actually hoping to attain some higher spiritual levels himself but very quickly he realized that was not going to work out for him but he did get in touch with um, some very special people so when he just arrived he got into his hotel and he received uh, a call from someone that he greatly admired saying that he would be able to meet this person the next morning at 11. So Wolfgang is really excited about this, but he doesn't tell anyone. And he goes out of his hotel and someone on the street talks to him. And he's like, you have good news, don't you? Something like this, I'm paraphrasing. He's like, yeah, what about it? He's like, something very good is going to happen to you at 11 tomorrow morning. And so he was really confused by this. He's like, how does this man know? And then the same man asks him a question like, um, what number? Um, Am I holding in my hand between zero and a hundred? And Wolfgang says 36 and it's 36. So this for him was an experience where he got convinced of, of higher spiritual powers, telepathy he calls it. And the man that he was confronted with is something that he would call a Fapir in India. And a Fapir is basically someone that goes onto the yogic path, but stops before ascending to higher levels. And so he or she gets this power and this power can be manipulated as well. Um, so that was one of the initial experiences. And later on, he goes and visits sadhus and sadhus are people that are definitely like higher in this spiritual path. And upon contacting them, he, he feels this, this great reverence for them. He feels a great a great admiration for these people. And he's noticing that they're really not in the body. Um, so he sees these people and they're basically in trance for, for 20 hours a day. They're really not there. And he's starting to see that the paradigm he was gifted in, in Western science was not according with what he was seeing. He's like, these things, they're, they're not explicable uh, through the eyes of the physicist. So, Upon returning from India um, to the U.S., he brings back this, this insight, this knowledge, and he basically starts to understand that, that physics, in a way, is wrong if it's taken to be reality. 
Um, and he says that because in physics, reality is basically reduced to quantity. So everything that is real to him is measurable. Um, not to him, sorry, but to the physicist. So he had great trouble with this because of course there's, there's quality there, there is color, there is music. Um, and this you cannot quantify. So he starts to, uh, to understand the world through a new paradigm, which he gets in India, but he also got it in Platonism. And this is what they call in Sanskrit, the Tripuvana. And he calls it the three worlds um, theory, I guess. And in Platonism, he says this is not explicitly stated, but he, he catches it from, from all, the, all the texts. And to him, it's clear that the Platonists had this understanding. And I'd like to actually share my screen to show what that would look like, mm -hmm. if I can do that. Sure. There you go. Let me see. Yeah. Are you able to see the, yeah. the icon? So what we're seeing is basically a cosmic icon. This is a, a visual image representing the way the people in the Vedic tradition understand the world. And in the Platonist tradition, he sees it as the same. So in the middle, you have a, a center. This represents a realm that is without time and space. And according to him, all being originates from here. So all reality comes from here. Now, this is not to be mistaken with God. This is, the, this is an image of the cosmos. So this is the eternal plane, as he calls it. Eternal is not eternal. Eternal is another term. I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a Christian term, actually. It probably comes from the Middle Ages. And what you see between the cosmic icon and the outer line is what he calls the intermediary realm. This is with time, but not with space. And he asserts that the intermediary realm is basically what you go into when you dream. Because what happens when you dream, you still have a conception of time, but you don't have a conception of space. At least the space you experience is practically false. And by virtue of just the existence of this intermediary realm, he says that Einsteinian relativistic physics is wrong because it deals with space-time. And clearly to him, reality is not just space-time. Just the existence of this for him is already a big, a big leap into another direction. And then the outer circle is actually what we experience. So this is space and time, but importantly, it's also quality. So that means that you have green grass, you have, you have beautiful song, you have the quality that makes the world so rich. And precisely why he says physics is wrong is because physics doesn't even take the outer level as reality. It takes something even below that. So that is only quantity. So that's all fine when you're dealing with theories, but when you start to take your theory for reality, it can become very dangerous very quickly. Because basically by denying the existence of a corporeal level, an intermediary level, and more importantly, an eternal level, you don't understand where being comes from anymore, and you cannot admit quality. And I know you did a series, Karen, on Robert Piercig, and his basic idea is as well that 
quality is not existent in our paradigm. And he talks about the Aristotelian paradigm of subject-object metaphysics. So basically that the world, well, it's a, it's a map, but if you take it as reality, it states that the world consists of, of subjects and objects and it misses a quality aspect. And that's precisely what misses when you look at the world through a physical lens. So are you following up to this point? I, I am following. I, I, I would like to interject here because I think this is probably the appropriate time to do this. Yeah. Um, so you said that, that in the, so let's go off, let's go off this screen for a minute. Yeah. So you, you said that um, yeah. physics is wrong is if it is taken to be reality that um, physics reduces everything to just quantity. Mm. And then um, in Wolfgang's view, obviously that can't be true because there is this intermediary realm where there's time only and not space. And then in the corporeal realm where there is both time and space, there's also quality. So if you reduce everything to quantity, then there's some sort of a disjunct between what physics sees as reality and what us normal people see as reality, right? So in Wolfgang's book, um, Ancient Wisdom and Modern Misconceptions, he does an essay on Arthur Eddington, who, the, so a little bit of the backstory of Arthur Eddington is that when Einstein announced his theory of relativity, Eddington was one of the ones that went on that expedition to, to witness the, um, oh my goodness, <laughs> my brain freeze, the, the, when the sun, the, um, when the sun gets blacked out, what do we call that? Uh, is it the, <laughs> it's not the equinox, is it? No, it's the oh, eclipse. Um, eclipse. Okay. Eclipse. That's eclipse it. Eclipse of the sun, yeah. because they thought that from that, they could determine whether or not light bends the way that mm -hmm. Einstein said that it would. And indeed they found that it did. And so Eddington brought this back and then he promoted Einstein's ideas for much of the rest of his career. But Eddington was known in his own right for a number of, findings in physics, and he was a very brilliant guy. Wolfgang gives him credit where credit is due, but also kind of takes him apart where he feels he's wrong. But but in this art, anyway, in this article on Eddington, um, Eddington is making the argument that the physical laws, the, the laws of physics, are basically subjective. And because they're subjective, that allows them to be completely precise. Because when you look at objective reality, measurements can never be completely precise. Like in objective reality, the moon is X number of miles from earth, but we can never get a precise measurement of that because of trajectory and the, the end body problem and all of those things. So the measurement can never be exactly precise, but we can get these constants to an app in, in the physical laws, we can get constants to an absolute amazing precision, you know, dozens of, of decimal points out. So um, 
I'm just going to read this little part from his article about Eddington. He says, <clears throat> certainly the descriptions at which the physicist arrives are not wholly subjective. Yet Eddington insists that the laws of physics as distinguished from what he terms special facts are wholly subjective. And that is precisely the reason why these laws can indeed be known with mathematical precision. The vaunted precision of physics, Eddington declares, derives in fact from its subjectivity. As Whitehead once put it, exactness is a fake. The so-called special facts, on the other hand, are objective to some extent, depending on two things our procedure in obtaining that observational knowledge and what there is to observe. So let's say we're observing the moon. Now we have a procedure for determining the distance between us and the moon. And we have a procedure for determining, you know, that the moon might actually be there or not be there, right? So, so um, take for instance, the fact that the moon is so and so many miles distant from the earth Although this finding presupposes evidently an observational procedure for measuring distance, it is not determined by that procedure alone. The aforesaid assertion concerning the moon has thus an objective content. What he's saying here is that it isn't just the observational procedure of measuring the distance from the earth that establishes that the moon is that far from the earth. The moon is in fact that far from the earth. So there is this difference between observational procedure, which depends on the subjectivity of the person doing the observational procedure and the actual fact of the objective reality of the moon being where it is. These things on perception are very difficult to, to comment on, but um, the reason I think this is important is that Verveke talks all the time about the, the subjective and the objective. You mentioned earlier the Aristotelian idea of the subject and the object. But that completely leaves out the transjective connection between those two things, right? Absolutely. So objective reality cannot be precisely measured. We know that. I've had a number of episodes on measurement and, and why precision is is impossible. Um, but here's the thing, utopias can be precisely measured. This is why utopias are so attractive to people, because you can set up a utopia and you can make it seem exactly the way you want it to be. And you're not subject to the rules of actual objective reality in a utopia, because it's all whatever you want it to be, it's all in the mind. And lately, people have been talking a lot about signal and noise. Mm. And the way I see it, this, this, um, this progressive desire to move towards utopias is this striving to capture just the signal and not capture the noise. Because the noise is part of the randomness that makes that makes um, objective reality impossible to measure exactly, 
right? There's a, there's a randomness there. There's a noise element to that that permits that permits something more. That permits qualities to participate it's in it. Yeah, it, it, it's the number seven, basically. I think. Oh wow! Tell me about that. Well, if you're talking about utopia, you're talking about something that's akin to perfection. So if you look at uh, the rise of the Nazis, they, they tried to carve something perfect. Everything is orderly. There is no, like they're, they were very um, geared toward, geared against disgust, let's say. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's really satanic. If you understand the, the number six and the number seven, the number six is like, it's a perfect number. It doesn't have that extra, extra one that makes it such a tricky you know, a tricky little thing because seven, seven is like the, the the one on top of the six is that extra little residue that makes something whole. Um, and if you try to bend nature to your will, if you try to make the number six your reality, you're just going to fail. And it's a, it's a nasty endeavor. So you can better embrace some of that noise because that is, like you say, objective reality. So that's what I would say. Hmm. But... <laughs> It's beyond my. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think that that's really interesting. That so that extra remainder is partly why, um, partly why pi, is has is an infinite number, right? Yeah, exactly. Because of that remainder, because isn't pi twenty two divided by seven? I think so. I think because so. it's three, it's three fourteen something. Yeah. I had yeah. kids in class back in the day. They would memorize that. Three point one four one five nine. Blah 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 blah. There we go. <laughs> but I think it's twenty two divided by seven. So so both the twenty two has that extra one, because twenty one divided by seven would be a perfect three, right? But then the seven also has that extra one. So both on the top and the bottom, there's that extra one. Exactly. So I'm going to just continue this out a little bit because I think this is. For me, this is a very important thing. Um, continuing his inquiry into the nature of the physicist's net, Eddington distinguishes between the application of scientific instruments. Okay, you have your instrumentation, you have your measurement instrument, and the conceptual frame of reference in terms of which empirical data are interpreted. So you can have all the data you want, but it depends on your frame of reference as to how you interpret it. And the reason I think that's important is I, I know that you haven't been following the whole Wolfram argument, but Stephen Wolfram has this idea that we live in a war, a universe that's almost completely computationally irreducible. But within our lived experience, there are slices of computational reducibility and those slices of computational reducibility are what make it possible for us to understand the laws of physics, to understand mathematics, because we see, we see this computational irreducibility all around us, and then something slots into place for us in this slice of computational reducibility that a physicist could go, oh, I see how that works. And then they come up with a formula that describes that thing that they're seeing. But the key is that it's what we're seeing because of the kind of entity that we are. Now, Wolfram says, suppose you were an alien entity in another part of the universe. 
you would see a different slice of computational reducibility and you might have different physical laws for the universe, but that would not change the universe. It yes. just changes your, your slice that you're seeing. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so that goes to this little video I want to share. Um, Actually, I have two little videos. One is this, we might not get to this one, but there's this wonderful discussion that Wolfgang has with Richard Smith about J.J. Um, Gibson and his ecological theory of perception. But while I'm on Wolfram, I want to go to this piece right here. This is about two minutes. Now, what this is, is this is Stephen Wolfram talking to a guy about molecular computing and Wolfram has his theory. He's trying to see if his theory is true. So he's speaking to people from many different fields to analyze whether his theory is correct. And the reason I think this piece is so important right here is that he's talking about, you know, how Wolfgang says everything can't reduce to quantity but the physicists want to reduce everything down to the standard model, the, the 14 or 22 particles or however many different kinds of particles there supposedly are. There's, there's the quarks and within the quarks, there's the up quark, the down quark, the charm quark, all of the, but theoretically those particles all of the up quarks in the universe would be identical. All of the down quarks in the universe would be identical. All of the charm quarks in the universe would be identical, right? Yeah. This guy talking about molecular computing has a different idea. James's observation is that the proof of uniqueness of an eme, of an atom of existence, cannot be made in the context of the Rouliad alone but requires regression to the hyperruliad. Now I'm going to stop right there. The ruliad is his word for the universe that operates according to a certain set of rules. The hyperruliad would be whatever is outside of that universe. Okay. So the proof of the existence of these minute particles cannot be made from within the ruliad. I think that's the same argument that Gödel makes that the completeness of a system, a system cannot be, it can either be complete or consistent within its own set, but to be both of them, you have to move outside the set for that. So in order to establish the, in order to establish the existence of Eames or the smallest particles, whatever they might be, you have to go outside the Rouliad to the hyper-Rouliad. Uh, okay, so the, the, the... Just, just for some context, right? So Eames, Eames have to, uh, they, they possess two properties. So the first is that they exist, which is important. And the second is that they have UUIDs. Okay, the, they have to exist because if Eames don't exist, I mean, they're the primordial building blocks of the Rouliad. So if Eames don't exist, then the Rouliad doesn't exist. But they also have to be unique because if they're not unique, you can't distinguish between them. And I would say if you can't distinguish between the Eames, then there's no reason to say that there are 
multiple eames and then you basically have a big crunch in the rule yet and the whole thing will collapse so you have did you catch what he says that the eames have to have uuids if so I... is that the uniqueness what he's talking about yes a, a uuid is a unique user identification okay uuid so and when they use this word eam they're talking about the smallest particle in Wolfram's theory of how the universe operates, which I won't go into, it's not necessary, but just imagine that you're talking about a quark or something smaller than a quark. Go down smaller than a quark and imagine every one of these particles has to have a unique user ID. They have both of them. You know, e, uh, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. The, okay, so first point about the Rouliad is the you know one of the key issues is um, you know the Rouliad in its kind of in its rawest state uh, trees out everything. Okay, but but there are equivalences which make the Rouliad non-trivial. Okay, but those equivalences we have said are, but that those those equivalences are being made by observers. I mean, most of the equivalencing is done at the observer level. Okay, but so now what you're saying is um, that if you want to know, I mean, the equivalencing of Eames and the fact that they are not all equivalent you're saying is something that is outside of the observer. The non-equivalence of Eames. In other words, being able to tell there are Eames that the observer can equivalence. Yes. The claim would be that going the other way, that maintaining the Eames as inequivalent is something not within the power of the observer. That is an observer can equivalent, the claim would be Mm -hmm. An observer can equivalence Eames. But only because they're by default unique in the rule yet. Right. Can equivalence Eames for their own purposes. Yes. As an observer. But an observer um, can't establish the inequivalence of Eames. In other words, an observer can just say, look, you know, I believe that something definite is happening, therefore I'm conflating all these different things. Right. But, but okay. the Muliad can't even establish can't even establish the that's correct. Okay, so let's let's look at the analogy to black holes. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. Um, because I want to go back to the transcript here. What he's saying is the observer because of our slice of computational reducibility, the observer can make all the Eames equivalent, which is what the physicists do, but that's only because of the kind of observer that we are. But for reality to exist, the Eames have to be inequivalent. They have to each have an identity. Exactly. Can I quickly pull in Descartes in here? Because Please. I think it ties in well, yeah. and I Please. should have mentioned it before, because basically Wolfgang says that a lot of what has happened is because of very bad philosophy, 
And Descartes, I mean, for Vegas as a goal, he's a giant. So I don't want to reduce him to what he got wrong. But his idea of bifurcation is dominant within physics. It's basically what physics is built upon. It's what allows physics to be here. And it separates uh, res extense and res, res cogitans, which basically means things of the mind and things outside of the mind. And basically, it says that quality is inside of the mind. That's, that's what physics operates on. So the layer one of physics, the philosoph philosophical layer, says that quality is within us. So the grass is not really green. And that really allows for um, what you say, computational reducibility. Mm -hmm. Because try measuring quality. I mean, <laughs> try, to, try to capture that. Like, of course, we are in awe of nature and music because there's no way for us to do that. So I think it ties in well with that. Um, so he also says that if he tries to explain this idea of bifurcation to a physicist, it's impossible. Like the physicist live this reality um, and takes it for reality. And that's basically the problem there. Yeah. Well, he goes back, he goes on to talk about this idea of green. Um, not sure I can find it and I'm not sure I can do it justice, but he's saying, um, when a, when a scientist runs light through a prism and discovers green coming out the other side, has he discovered green or is, um, is green something that is just a part of that? You know, like they're, they're always having this argument, is math discovered or created? Has the physicist created green by running the light through the prism? Or has the physicist discovered green by running the light through the prism? Or is a physicist simply observing the way reality operates that when you run light through a prism, you get green? Because there's a lot of options there and which one of those perspectives you choose is gonna determine the way that you understand reality. Yeah, absolutely. I think that so say Sir Roger Penrose, even when you ask him the question about mathematics, even he would say that mathematics is there, it's real. And that's very difficult to understand from our paradigm. Well, mm -hmm. maybe not ours, but like the materialistic paradigm. Because you could say like, we, of course, we, we make up math. I mean, it's not, I can't touch it. I can't see it. I can't. But these we're talking about perfect bodies. We're talking about things that, that are already sound very platonic you know like they, you cannot find a perfect circle on earth you can try i mean you can you can carve one out you can print it out um but i grant you it will not be perfect and if you enter into the to the realm of mathematics you're entering into something uh, wholly different and also the platonists they were so obsessed with with geometry for mm -hmm. this reason because mm -hmm. wolfgang also says that that the platonists they used geometry and sacred geometry practices to enter into the eternal realm. Um, that's mm -hmm. that sounds pretty mystical. I cannot tell you how you get there. <laughs> it also says it takes a, a lifelong celibacy to get there. So uh, I don't think a lot of us will be able to do that. But that that's just an interjection. I don't know how this applies to the green part, though. So you're talking about the prism. Well, sure. Like let, let let's say. Um... So Wolfgang is always saying that when you 
that Descartes would, would have the idea that the green is in your mind. When you look at the green grass, the green is just in your mind. And we're just applying green onto that grass through the, through the neurons firing in our brains. We're, we're seeing, we're experiencing green um, or the, the consciousness studiers would say we're, we're having a qualia effect of green in our minds. Right. But Wolfgang makes this point that, that you're actually looking at grass and grass is actually green. Um, but that, that implies that there actually is a world outside of us that's there, whether we're thinking about it or not. Yes. The, the physicists used to always have this argument is the moon there when you're not looking at it, right? Yep. He would say that that is um, nonsensical, that the moon wouldn't be there. And he didn't have the scientific evidence for it before, but I think you're going to pull up that clip about James Gibson and his theory of ecological perception. Um, well, well, I can, but what I'm going to do right now in, um, is pull up, um, I need to get, I need to get back to my screen here. Um, I'm going to pull up a quote that Eddington made on the moon. Now, um, Wolfgang accuses Eddington of, of not being able to see this, but there is this actually cool quote that Eddington made on the moon. Can you see this page here? There is a doctrine well known to philosophers. Are you looking at the same screen? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was okay. not. Yeah. There is a doctrine well known to philosophers that the moon ceases to exist when no one is looking at it. I will not discuss the doctrine since I have not the least idea what is the meaning of the word existence when used in this connection. At any rate, the science of astronomy has not been based on this spasmodic kind of moon in the scientific world, which has to fulfill functions less vague than merely existing. There is a moon which appeared on the scene before the astronomer. It reflects sunlight when no one sees it. It has mass when no one is measuring the mass. It is distant 240,000 miles from the earth when no one is surveying the distance. And it will eclipse the sun in 1999, even if the human race has succeeded in killing itself off before that date. So Eddington is making the point that the moon is there. Now you can quibble about the word existence, but, but there is a moon. And in the same way, I think that um, Wolfgang is making the point that the grass is green, whether you're looking at it or not. But, um, but yes, there is this beautiful um, video of him You probably can't see this right now, so I need to stop sharing and go back and reshare my screen so I get to the right screen. Now you can see Wolfgang. Can you see the screen with Wolfgang on it? Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, my bad. <laughs> You're nodding, but I can't see you. So. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> So we're talking about Gibson, right? Yeah, he's talking about J.J. Gibson. Amazing. In life, I discovered that there was a cognitive 
psychologist at Cornell University. In fact, I was there as an undergraduate student when he was a young postdoctoral uh, professor mm -hmm. um, doing work on a, a government grant to see, to investigate how... Can you hear him? One actually perceives the so-called aiming point. Mm -hmm. This was at the beginning of the war and the government people wanted to know how to test prospective pilots to see if they would be good at landing and plane on a deck of an aircraft carrier. And so what this young uh, cognitive psychologist who claimed as James Gibson, what James Gibson discovered very quickly is that actually the information that exists on the retina the information, in other words, expressed in terms of retina images does not suffice to land a plane on the deck of an aircraft. So he uh, discovered that the entire so-called visual image theory or visual perception, which is standard, mm -hmm. is wrong-headed. Now, uh, the amazing thing is that he wasn't fired and disappeared from view. He was not. He worked for the next 30 years doing incredibly brilliant experiments and finally came up with what he calls the ecological theory of vi visual perception. Ecological means that we perceive, what we perceive is not inside our head, but outside what we perceive is actually the environment, mm -hmm. which is another name for what I call the corporeal world. Yes. And so he was able to develop a very cogent, well-tested theory of visual perception, according to which what we perceive is not in neurons or in some spooky minds floating over the neurons, <laughs> but it's what we perceive is actually the green grass and the solid table. Mm. Now, the amazing thing is that uh, he was not somehow catapulted out of the universities, mm -hmm. but they did the next best thing. Nobody knows about James Gibson. Mm. It, I, it was a miracle of, from heaven that I somehow discovered because <laughs> Gibson supplied a necessary component for my interpretation of physics. My... So I thought this was super interesting because um, I had seen this before I heard Verveke talking about J.J. Gibson. And Verveke is yeah. really high on Gibson from the standpoint of affordances and this whole issue of is is when we see a cup, do we see the cup or do we see what the cup affords us? Exactly. Which would be another way of um, Jordan Peterson always talks about when you see an object, you don't see the object, you see it, you see the tool that you're going to make of that object. And then your body prepares itself, like your hand prepares itself to hold the cup. When you immediately, when you see the cup, your hand prepares itself. So there's not even time to think it through. Oh, that's a cup and I'm going to drink out of it. Yeah. Your body is already prepared for that. Right. So that's 
Gibson's theory of affordances, but Gibson also had this ecological theory of perception that when you look at something, it's not just, well, and Sheldrake also talks about this, about there's no, inside your mind, there's no movie screen in there that these neurons are putting an image up on this movie screen. We're actually seeing what's outside of us. It's actually there, we're seeing it where so many of the physicists and the idealists and all these other people are just talking about all these particles are out there. And we just have, um, we have evolved in a way that we can make sense out of those particles and see them in a particular way. But, but Wolfgang's making the argument that it's actually there, that when you sit on a chair, you're not sitting on a bunch of subjective particles, but you're sitting on a chair. And it directly implies quality, which is, I think, extremely important because it's it's all fun and games when you're playing these theories out in your head as a physicist. But if it starts to encapsulate your worldview, it leads to some very dehumanizing ideas, I would say, because you take the quality out of the equation. Um, I mean, I can understand why so many people are atheists <laughs> or materialists. Because if, if they ask the smartest people on the planet what reality is and they give them equations, then there's really something wrong. And I would be very sad if that was my worldview. Um, so I think it actually laid the groundwork for a lot of the, the nihilism that, that characterizes some of the, the modern age, let's say. So I think it's extremely important. It's also why I, this message resonates so much with me because I feel that this is something so important to share. Um, and Whitehead himself, he tried to convince physicists his entire life of this idea that, that the, the bifurcation, like why, why, that everything is basically not <laughs> just in the mind, but the physicists, they just don't understand. So they're too deep into it. And that's very often what you see with people who are more schooled in the universities, they're so far programmed that the deep program is very, is very difficult. But it gives me hope because the normal person is much more uh, likely to understand these things. It's the same with uh, our last episode about Austrian economics. You tell this to a guy who's studied in university for five years, he won't understand it. Um, but if you just explain Austrian economics to a normal person, you realize, okay, this actually makes sense. Because I have these conversations all the time with people, they really get it talk about Keynesianism to people they, they're very same with same with phys physics basically the equations they're very weird but we all understand that the, that the trees are green and the music is beautiful um, <laughs> so I think this is such important work which is why I want to talk to you wanted to talk to you about it um, and it's ultimately what led me to your channel so I'm very grateful that you uh, that you got to speak with him actually and I was wondering, how did you even get into contact with him? Because I think you're one of the first people to to have him on. Well, I don't remember exactly how long ago it was when I first talked to him, maybe a year and a half, two years, something like that. Um, it happened because one of my viewers, and it might have been, I might have this wrong, so please, if it's not you, please <laughs> don't be upset with me. It might have been Nate Heil sent me an email and he said, you know, looking at all the stuff that you're doing in physics, I think you might want to get in touch with this guy, Wolfgang Smith. And he gave me his name and I looked him up and he had all these books. And I thought, well, that guy's never going to talk to me. <laughs> Who am I? Amazing. And how would I even get in touch with him? 
but I, uh, I think I put something out on Twitter and I said, I would like to talk to Wolfgang Smith. Does anybody have contact information for him? And someone, I don't remember who, sent me his contact information and said, I think this will work. And so I got in touch with him directly. And he wow. said, oh, yes, I would, I'd be delighted to talk to you. That's incredible. You're the seed. You're <laughs> the start of it. But then I, I uh, when I tried to have the conversation with him over Zoom, he couldn't quite understand how to get the Zoom downloaded onto his phone and he couldn't understand how to make it work. And so he said, you need to contact Richard because Richard runs my foundation and I usually do these conversations through Richard. So Richard can dial it in. So then Richard was a part of all our conversations because Richard was the one that could get him set up on the modern technology, right? Wow. Um, so yeah, that was how I first got in touch with him. And I have to thank you because you got you got me to him as well through I, I got there through Kurt theories of everything Kurt Jamungo. Uh huh. Um, and for the people listening, if you want to get deeper into his work and you don't want to read everything, there is about seven hours of podcasts with with Kurt, and it goes really deep. And Kurt himself said about the second one that it was the most one of the most intimate conversations he ever had. Um, yeah, the second half of that thing with Kurt is just amazing i mean really 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 good questions he asked and because kurt was actually staying there he had um some close communal time during meals and everything to actually help get relaxed right and for both of them to be relaxed and then they could really dig deep into these things that's amazing i was it in oregon or or did he go all the way to i don't know um at the time that I first contacted Wolfgang, he was living in Southern California. So uh, I don't yeah. know where. Okay, okay. He might have moved, but yeah. I don't know where um, Kurt went to meet with him. Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, it's a nice moment to speak a bit about his religious ideas. Because mm-hmm. thinking about these theories, you can start to understand what, what it would lead to in terms of a worldview. Um, and again, on Kurt's channel, you see him discuss this very thoroughly. He spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. And I really like his take on, on the Vedic religion as well, because I think there's very few people in this space who really understand it. And if you try to understand it from a Christian point of view, it's very difficult or a Western point of view. Um, so Wolfgang was raised Catholic when he was a, a young child and he said that even though he was raised in this way due to the war and due to moving to america he kind of lost a bit of touch with that and like i said before when he was in university doing his triple major um he got into contact with uh with this little poetry book gitanjali and it's really set him on fire i actually read it recently it's uh it's quite beautiful it's a short short little book but it's uh i understand I think I understand what, why it did and what it did. Well, if you can send me the link, I'll put it in the description. Of the, the talks or? Of, of the book. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. The poetry book, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. And um, basically, this, this enamored him with India, like I said, and he went to India. And initially, like I said, he, he thought he would be able to actually 
participate to get into these in the, to these spiritual levels. But he realized that this was not the case for him. And one of the reasons I think why he could not embrace it is because he kept asking the question about what remains in the union with God. Because basically in the Vedic tradition, the ultimate goal, um, from what I understand, is, is the ego immolation, is, is complete loss of the self, the, the union with the divine and the, the, the nirvanic option, as he calls it. And every time he asked anyone there what remains of the human, they would say nothing, absolutely nothing, because that's the goal. Even the, the clothes that they wear, the sadhus, the garu, I, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, the color is supposed to represent death, I think, or the ego emulation, I should say. So the, the self does not remain. And coming back to the West, he realized that the Christian was kind of the polar opposite. So this comes into his critique of a lot of modern ideas of perennialism. And perennialism is basically the school of thought about religions that they all lead to the same union, all of, the same, all of these roads lead to the same end, basically. And he's basically saying that that's not true. There's two different main paths, uh, the Christic, the Christian, and the Vedic. And the Vedic is a union with God, loss of the self. And the Christic is actually more of a relationship. It's, uh, what is the what is the term again? It is salvation. Mm -hmm. And getting salvation from, from Christ um, means a union, but it also means a relationship. So it's a, the self remains in a certain way. What that is exactly, I'm not going to speculate about, but... He's basically saying that with the coming of Christ, the second option was, was initiated. And he also said that for Western man, it is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to walk the Vedic path. So he realized coming back to the West that this was not for him. But he did have something that he could take back with him. And it is a deeper understanding of this tradition and a deep reverence for it. So if you ask him if any religion is better than the other, the Vedic or the Christian, he says no, because they're different but they're both from God. So he, he talks about religion as a, as religare, as binding back. So if it's a religion, if you acknowledge it as a religion, it has to go back to God. And depending on what kind of Christian you are, you can have different opinions about it. But I would just say that it's extremely difficult to understand this tradition through the Christian eyes. Um, and the same way goes for the other way around. So that's basically how he felt about it. And at the age of 40, he met his wife, Thea, who he also always speaks about so lovingly. It's, uh, it's very heartwarming when I hear him speak about his wife. He met him the later stage at the university. I think she was doing her PhD, maybe. And his wife was a Catholic, same, the way, same as the way he was raised. And she brought him back to his roots. And it was funny because in the interview with Kurt they shared this that their that their wives brought them to Christianity <laughs> and I think this is something that happens more often where it's often the women that keep the faith strong that that maintain the church that you know what I mean I think that it's often uh, such a strength and so he got back to his roots and sorry did you want to interject well, I, I have thoughts, but I don't need to interject. 
You sure? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, my, my main thought is that this idea of marriage, I think, is fundamental to everything. <clears throat> and not, not just marriage of man and woman, but the, the marriage of, let's say, the marriage of noise and signal, or the marriage of mm. accuracy and expression. And uh, I think one of the reasons that women help men come in contact with it with the church or with the faith is that yes men and women each have the masculine and feminine within them and yes men and women both have accuracy and expression as part of their kind of paradigm but i do think that women in you know if you if you had the two bell curves the woman's bell curve would be a little bit, you know, they cross over, but the woman's bell curve would be a little bit further to the, towards the expression side. So women tend to be more open to the noise. Women tend to be more open to the, the expressive side of the world. And men tend to be more focused on the accuracy side and more yeah. focused on the signal side which is really good because that's what, you know, that helps keep the world running and all that. But, but you need to have both. You need to I love have that. the noise and the signal coming together. And, I and think it's uh, perfection and wholeness. So the masculine is perfection. So it's the sun and the wholeness is the moon and the moon changes and the moon um, conceals and the moon has the number seven, like we spoke about before. So yeah, that's beautiful. And, I hadn't heard that paradigm before, but that's really interesting. Yeah. The moon and the sun? Well, this idea of perfection and wholeness representing oh, yeah. the sun and the moon. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of feminists that would hate that word perfection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when Attribute I tried to explain perfection it, to the men, shall we? <laughs> I, I think wholeness is actually more beautiful. So I think that's yeah. always the way I try to try to <laughs> introduce it. Well, so I, I, yeah, I think you could look at um, another one would probably be aim and um, environment, right? Mm, So perfection and wholeness would be aim and environment. So the masculine side is more intent on the aim and the feminine side is more intent on observing the the whole environment, the whole wholeness around um <clears throat> which leaves yeah. leaves room for the for the outskirts as well yes you know yeah that's very important i think that like you have the center and then you have the periphery and the feminine has the receptivity and the openness to to welcome the receptivity in mm-hmm. so that's the the side of of reality the side of christ however you want to understand it symbolically that that lets in that that speaks to the people on the outskirts and that's so important so well i, I think also that, think isn't there something scary about letting in the the spiritual i mean if if i'm just looking at this from a completely traditional viewpoint yeah. of the man being the hero the warrior the protector um the builder all of those things then he would have a certain shield up about not letting in the strange about not 
not being open to the unknown because after all, he has a goal to accomplish. And so for a man to be willing to let that in, he has to come to a place of being willing to be vulnerable. Mm. And it, for whatever reason, I think it's easier for women to be vulnerable, to, to be willing to risk letting, yeah. letting the strange in. Yeah, I think there's a heightened level of compassion uh, in the feminine, generally speaking. And so there's a, there's a higher openness to, to that periphery. And I think it's actually beautiful that the idea is that over time you integrate the opposite side as well. Mm -hmm. So I try my best to, to integrate both femininity and masculinity mm -hmm. at the same time and make it a complete union. So I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about masculine and feminine. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's what people misunderstand a lot. Exactly. That, that masculinity and femininity are are just frames for holding certain concepts or ideas or something that um and in order to be whole there has to be some of both in each person but but it can't be half 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 is never a good place to be i mean e either in art or in business or anything else there has to be one side that's more than the other and so mm. I have known couples that were completely successful where the wife was more masculine and the husband was more feminine in terms of these hierarchical ways of thinking and, yeah. um, and just the way that they took on the world. And it was completely successful, but that's because there was one of each. Yeah, exactly. I have the same right? in, my, uh, in my relationship, actually. <laughs> I have the more feminine side, which... Uh which I think is quite interesting because people are always like, because uh, it's as well with like building on the house, like working on the house, the neighbor would be like, oh, Lucas, you're going to do this. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not for me. I'm not very good at that. I'm more agreeable and um, I love people. And my girlfriend really loves people. Um, but I think I have more of the feminine some way, but we try to both like also integrate more of the other side. Yeah. Um, and we both actually have, um, she has a she has a moon on her shoulder. I have a sun on my shoulder because I'm more of the the moon type and I try to integrate more of the sun and she's the opposite side. Mm. Um, so when I spoke to you in our first conversation about my period that I was spiritually more drifting, that was really my moon, my moon time, basically. Um, and now I'm in a period where I'm trying to get back some of that that sun energy. Mm -hmm. So I'm back to 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 working out more in a different in a different way um and and eating a lot you know getting really strong again because before it was mostly just running in the dark you know? <laughs> and then a lot of meditations um and spiritual drifting and not a lot of human connection horizontally mm -hmm. so that's a that's an inter interesting way to tie that into that but i wanted to say tying it back into into wolfgang okay so he met his wife that's where we were exactly yeah Sorry for drifting off, guys. Um, his conversion was, after that, largely influenced by uh, the works of St. Augustine, uh, the Confessions. And I was just enamored by, by Wolfgang, so I just wanted to read all of the stuff. So I read the Confessions as well. I thought that was, uh, it was very beautiful. It's basically the first autobiography uh, known to us. And it's a man who had deep troubles. So it's really, I think it's very inspiring nowadays as well, because it's someone that, that really was not a good kid, you know, in many ways, not a good kid. 
and he turned out super well with the spiritual transformation so it was very it was very beautiful to read and apparently this was one of the works that really convinced wolfgang to, to go back and the main thing again was that he he realized that this is his software this is who he is and um he really embraced his catholicism after that however he wrote a whole book named Telhardenism and the new religion maybe i'm not sure but it was focused on this this figure named Teilhard de Chardin it's a bit of a funny name it's t e i l h a r d i think it's a frenchman mm -hmm. and he apparently was very influential in the second vatican council and he had some ideas that wolfgang would describe as gnostic as almost satanic he thought he was um he was kind of a possessed person in many ways so he conceptualized i think he conceptualized heaven as more as like something futuristic you know sort of a utopic idea and he had other ideas that wolfgang thought would were very uh, dangerous. So this actually led him away from the mainstream above ground uh, Catholicism. He was very skeptical of that. He saw them integrate. Also, uh, I must add that this thinker, he was really a big fan of, of evolution and, and science in general. And he had a quote, which was something like, in the end, the only thing I believe in is, is evolution. But this is a quote from a quote, so don't quote me on this. Uh, <laughs> And basically, this, this led Wolfgang to be very suspicious of, of modern-day churches. And this is something that I really want to speak to you about. And I would actually so, love to so speak to you. So let me him. just clarify there a little bit. So Teilhard de Chardin was very um, supportive of the idea of evolution and, and very persuasive. And so he was able to persuade a lot of the church leadership not to fear the theory of evolution, but to allow it to be kind of incorporated into a lot of the church teaching. And Wolfgang was very suspicious of that approach and how influential he was with the church. And so Wolfgang wrote this book to oppose Chardin's teachings. Yeah. Um, Chardin's thought is still very influential in the Catholic church. Thank you for clarifying that. So yeah. Now, now you're going to go on and talk about. Yeah, because modern day churches for him are like he would. He said, I won't set foot in, in many of these churches. And this turns into a bit of a pickle because like I look at all these thinkers in the corner and I try to integrate them. So I try to mm -hmm. understand like what what is real. And so you have Peugeot, you have Van der Klei say, just just go to church. And so I was going to church. Catholic church over here, just the closest one I could find. It's an international church. Um, but I, I kept being quite annoyed with the sermons, let's say. Um, like it felt a bit social justice warrior type of sermons. And hearing Wolfgang now, I was like, oh, wait, what is going on? Like, what do I do now? Because now I don't know. And it leads me to a bigger question is like, <clears throat> how picky should I be? <laughs> basically because he's like um, he's like i wouldn't set foot in a church like that but i have like an underground church which is, has been going on and and th those beliefs are more orthodox orthodox and all these things um and so yeah it's something i struggle with and then he says in the same interview 
that he believes that eventually the church and its splinterings will go back into, into one church, church of the resurrection, he calls it. And this will be more centered around the mystical. So the mystical allows for, for everyone, regardless of your intellectual status or, or whatever it is. Um, people are on the same level here. Um, but I'm like, okay, but how does that look? And <laughs> he's not able to describe that. And I actually wrote a, uh, wrote, read a book of his um, where you see the correspondence of him with a Catholic um, thinker, Malachi Martin. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. But Malachi Martin is um, is is someone who wrote a lot of books in the in the Christian world, and he's the one that convinced Wolfgang of this idea. But in the in the letters, Wolfgang asked, like, "I trust you understand how this is eventually going to play out." And I'm like, "No, just tell me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I don't know how I should how I should understand this." Um, and yeah, I was wondering what you think about all of these questions. Well, I mean, it is it is confusing, isn't it? I mean, um... yeah. Because I, throughout my entire Christian life, I became a Christian when I was 32. And throughout my entire Christian walk, I've been part of one or another Protestant denomination. <clears throat> well, not denomination. I've been part of one or another Protestant. We, 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 I don't think we would even use the word Protestant, actually. But not Catholic, not Orthodox. But yeah. what we would call uh, Bible churches. Now, that there is a downside to that, which means that there is no overarching authority other than God's word. And so you have to trust that whoever the pastor is of that Bible church and the one of the things that to me has always been very important in a church is that the church does not have a head pastor who is the sole authority in the church but that above the pastor, there is a board of elders and the board of elders actually have authority to speak into the life of the pastor. So if the pastor goes off the rails, this board of elders who is elected by the church body would speak into the life of the pastor. So the pastor is not the main authority. Um, in denominations, usually beyond the board of elders of the local church, there is the denomination, which has its hierarchy of leadership. Um, the thing that bothers me about most denominations is that they have a list of beliefs that you have to sign off on if you want to participate fully in the life of the church. Yep. Like if you wanted to be a Bible study leader, you'd have to sign off on this list of denominational imperatives. And usually in every denomination, there's something that sticks out and says, hmm, that's, I don't see that in the Bible. Yeah. It seems it's like it's just us. It's just us guys, not, not the other guys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly. difficult to reconcile. So, um, so what, after I got into this little corner and I started listening to these guys like Jonathan Pajot and, and Bishop Barron and Paul Vanderclay, and they all seem to be concerned with whichever church hierarchy they're in. And, <clears throat> and in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, they have the liturgies and that's a very important part of the church as well. And that I totally get. I understand. I really wish that in 
our Bible churches that there would be more corporate reading of the scriptures and more corporate praying together. That used to be more a part of it. When I was first a new believer, there would be a lot more reading the scriptures together, praying together during the service, talking about God, what God was teaching us in the service. Yeah. Nowadays, everything is very um, performative. The musicians get up and perform the music rather than yeah. simply leading the congregation in participation of the music. And the pastor gets up and preaches at you for 45 minutes and you're supposed to just be a passive receiver and there's no maybe there's even no reading of the scripture from up front so there's not even that performance much less the the church body being able to gather together and yeah and do pray together so so i i do have my questions about all that but i also really believe in the um individual believers relationship with christ i just mm -hmm. think that's to me that's got to be central i can't hand that off to somebody else as much as i'd like to i'd like to be able to just say oh i'm just a member of that and so i'll do everything they tell me and then everything will be good but that's just way too easy <laughs> i think yep. each of us is responsible for maintaining our own relationship well that's the wrong way of putting it because in the end, I think Christ is faithful to maintain the relationship with us because he says, I mean, even if you, um, even if you're not faithful, I'm faithful. So he's always holding on. Um, yeah. But it takes two wills. Yes. For salvation. Yes. But I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I think you, you see more of the wholeness of you, you take more of the noise in like you're <laughs> I think that that's what we're what we're going toward. And I think that uh, your conversation with Teo, you spoke about um, churches as well. And it's like there's always the human. And I think that it is true that if we start treating the human as something like completely wrong, then we're also kind of missing the mark in a way. Because that is part of the noise and it's part of the wholeness. It's part of reality. So yes, there is no perfect church. But I mean, at the end of the day, Peugeot did also switch. You know, it's also always what I think. Like he did make the yeah. switch. Yeah. He's the one like you go to church, you can't do church shopping, but it's kind of what he did as well. So um, that's always well, something that I think about. The funny thing is I went to a church just recently. Um, I've been telling my husband for a long time, I just want to, I just want to visit some other churches and see, I've been wanting to visit an Orthodox church. When we were in Chino, they took us on a tour of an Orthodox church down there and we saw the interior of the church. And um, so after I came back, I wanted to check out an Orthodox church, but I couldn't really find one in the area that, mm. Most of them meet at odd times, like 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon or something, which yeah. is right when we have our small group at home. So I can't do that. Yeah. But there is a big church that started up about 10 years ago here. And since starting up, it has sprung out. And now there are 10 churches around the world that sprang out of this local church. And I thought, well, I want to find out what that's about, just out of curiosity. 
the church is called Vive, mm-hmm. V-I-V-E, and they've mm-hmm. got some international locations as well. I'm not exactly so what's the aware. what's the denomination? It's not a denomination. It's just a non-denominational oh, okay. church based on the Bible. Yeah. But um, and and the music is loud, and they've got light show and everything. And so part of it is like the kind of thing that or ordinarily wouldn't appeal to me at all. But it was so filled with glory. I mean, they were just lots and lots of worship, real worship time, really uplifting Christ and glorifying him and um, lots of reading of the scripture. And in the midst of all this noise and yeah, all of that, you know, there was this glory happening. And that was very surprising to me. I expected it to be a very performative church with just everything coming at me. But really, the whole congregation was participating in this move. And I would gladly go back there again. Yeah. Even even with the assault of all the lights and the loud music and everything, I would gladly go back there again, just because of that experience of really glorifying the Lord together rather than just sitting passively in the pews and listening to. Yeah, I hear you. It's already a lot of participation. And I do think that the sacred can be found in most places. So I think that I spoke actually with my dad about this because um, he's also in this corner. I had a talk with him on my channel last week, which was very interesting because you never really get to talk to your dad for an hour, you know, Uh (laughs) not like that. Um, and he just goes to the church that's closest to him. And he was like, um, you got to stop treating a church like it's something else. It's it's you as well. Like you're also the church. Mm-hmm. So you have a responsibility like for the community in there, uh, for, what's, for what's being done, for the participation. So I thought that's beautiful. It's, a, it's an insight. It's a perspective I take with me on my path. But I have been to Orthodox Church here. There's a Coptic one, actually. And so Coptic is uh, originally Egyptian, which mm-hmm. is pretty much where the first churches were were starting uh, a long time ago. And I actually have the, the Coptic cross because it ties into my, my studies because um, I also studied a bit of, of those early churches. Because you really go from the, the Egyptian culture, like you have the, the temples, like the, the Egyptian hieroglyphs everywhere. And then you all of a sudden you have these churches and I really wanted to see it because, well, it ties into what I study. Uh, and there's Arabic, there's original Coptic, which is a language I've been learning. And Arabic, I've been trying to get on as well. So they do Arabic, Coptic, and Dutch uh, interchangeably, those mm. three languages. And it was an incredible experience of, of just deep participation. Like you don't sit down. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're just standing up, you're singing along with everything. And uh, what 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 I saw there as well is that all the children they're they're very much taking part in the ceremony. So they're actually in the front. They wear these these little things, and and I think their belief comes forth from their participation. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the reason that that a lot of my siblings and uh, and cousins have moved away from the church is because they relied on their beliefs and they didn't have the participation. So that that is again something to take into account. Like if you want to raise, um, if you want to raise children, and 
and mm. you want to give them something strong to depend on in a relationship then and participation can give that experience that can give you the belief that is stronger than the proposition because i think like many people have experienced that proposition is sometimes not able to withstand uh, universities or a scientific paradigm so to everyone who's never been to an orthodox church i think it's quite an experience just are to see gonna, what are you going to go back i really do want to i've been thinking about it recently especially because i've been feeling this uh this this thing it's mm -hmm. i think it's god talking to me it was the same with wolfgang actually because i i watched the first episode with kurt i, I hadn't watched your stuff and at some point i got this pull and i like i, I was super busy with university I had a lot, lot of deadlines and i got this pull that that i had to understand his work so i started like reading some of his books listening to your conversations and there was just this burst and that that's i think god like for me it's communication where where I, I'm like answered because I keep praying, um, please show me my part to play in this world because that's what I'm looking for. I'm a young person. So I'm trying to understand what I have to do. And I think this was a very important part of that journey. And I think me feeling this, uh, this motivation to go to that Coptic church again is, is the same. Although I'm not sure if I could actually be a part of it uh, for many different reasons, practicalities. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what eventually led me to you. And I think it's so special to hear that you were the first in the corner to talk to him. <laughs> uh, and Kurt mentions you as well in the in the episode, I think. So um, so yeah, that's how I've kind of thus far taken Wolfgang's perspective. Um, and we keep uh, we keep going. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that really struck me about this vibe church is that we all stood for probably the first 45 minutes of yeah. service, which I had never experienced before. And, and mm -hmm. that's, it's really, it's really interesting how it changes your focus. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, Wolfgang's religious ideas, he's, he's very, um, very very traditional <laughs> yeah but in a way i hadn't seen before it's very interesting like he really takes the traditional because i think you read the book about the cosmology as well like he understands the modern scientific ideas yeah i have not read his book about vedanta he wrote no me neither vedanta in the light of the christian tradition but that book is like I don't know, $85 or something. It's out yeah, of it's what I mean. I've been trying to find it online. couldn't find it. Yeah. And it's also very short. So I feel that um, it's not worth that that money, but hopefully it becomes uh, more available. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, he, he did come back and he did have this ability to also show people the, the value of the other side of the, of the Vedic option and same way, other way around. And he's basically espousing the opposite idea of the perennialist really trying to make people aware that we are talking about opposites here so people that say that the east has everything the west has and more he says they're wrong in the same way the other way around and mostly i think what i take away from it is that it's very hard to walk the other path path so um this might be the path but yeah and he's very clear that you need according to him that you need a religion to to come to that union. 
Well, I mean, more and more people are coming to that. Even Dawkins says that he sees the need, he, he understands the need for religion. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he it's not for him. It's only for the little people that need a religion. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I yeah. hear you. There's something about this idea that, you know, the hoi polloi need a religion. and Basically, that'll keep them all in line, I guess, or keep them all lined up. The opium of the masses. Keep, keep the world operating, but the, the elite, yeah. the elite don't need a religion. So, no, you no. Know. But I do think that there, there, there are exceptions, of course. Like it's, I have a lot of sympathy for John uh, and his work, John Fafiki, mm -hmm. because there are people that have really traumatic experiences in the church. And I'm, I'm glad that John is here to fulfill the role of offering those people a spiritual home, if you can call it that. And so I'm very sympathetic toward John, although he does in the meaning crisis very clearly state that we need to move beyond, beyond religion. Um, that, that part I have some, some trouble with, but I really understand where he's coming from. Um, I think in many ways he's more Christ-like than a lot of people that, that call themselves Christian. So that comes back to the participation aspect, the acting out of, of the person or the symbol. Well, in so many of the, the the environments that I've been involved in as a believer, we would all say religion is not the answer. Mm. So, I mean, to me, to hear this, when I first got in this corner, I was having a lot of discussions with people about why are we using this word religion? Because I was always taught, and, and I understand it from the word too, that that we're not called to religion, we're called to relationship. So what's important is my relationship with Christ, my relationship with God, that a religion can be just traditions, it can be dead, religions can be dead. I've been in a lot of dead churches. So church isn't just church isn't the answer. If it's going to be church, it has to be a church that's a body of believers who are the church, not a church building that with some religion attached to it, but a body yeah. of believers that make up the church. So that relationship is what's important. So by having a relationship with Christ, you've sort of already moved beyond religion. But they're using the word religion strictly to have this etymological meaning of tied or bound mm. right so that you're tied or bound to this truth mm. but if you look at it that way then perennialism simply cannot be correct because christ himself says i am the way and this, the word says no one comes to the father but through christ there is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved than the name of Christ. So Christianity, if you accept the word as being true, is already exclusive. It excludes any other way that doesn't see Christ as the only way. And that doesn't fit very well in, in our modern world. People don't like exclusivity. People want 
everybody to be able to include it from everywhere. Yeah. Well, the Vedic path, it is a union with God. Um, but it's not through Christ, which makes it a different type of union. So I do, I do see definitely room for that. What I really struggle with myself is that Wolfgang, he sees the, the Christian and the Vedic as, as the two paths, basically. And he says that everything else is basically in between. That's quite an assertion to make. Um, everything else is in between? What is that? Yeah, mean? it's like, so, so Islam, Judaism, mm -hmm. he says that that's more of a derivation from the Christian path. Um, so he sees the Christian path and the Vedic path as, 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 as past the union with with God. Um, and anything but, else is not a path to union with God? Is that what he's saying? or? Yeah, not exactly, because in his view, um, and that's what I struggle with, because I find it very hard. I mean, I know my 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 relationship with, with Christ and, and God, and I know how to access it. And I know my, my way of, um, of speaking to God and, and feeling one, it works. But I don't want to discount all of Judaism or all of Islam or like I find it very, very hard to do because mm -hmm. I see such wisdom in those traditions as well. And there's a lot of different propositions and there's, there's way that, that of course these clash. Um, but yeah, so it, it's more of a, of a struggle with me because I mean, I live in a country, there's a lot of, a lot of people here that are, um, that are Muslim and mm -hmm. a lot of them I know and I respect them so much and I see so much more wisdom from them than I see mm -hmm. from my secular fellow countrymen. Mm -hmm. So I really get along like my barber, for example, and all the people that I see there, um, that they're, they're Muslim and I have such a deep reverence for them and i'm sure that there's so much wisdom in there and participatory knowledge as well and i i don't believe that god is not there mm -hmm. and so i struggle with that notion myself mm -hmm. but i understand it like i really get it uh but it's it's also why john calls jesus jesus of nazareth because he takes the jewish criticism very well that jesus would not be the christ now as a christian i cannot say that um but I do struggle with um, with this exclusion. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be natural to struggle with it because we live in a world in which exclusion is excluded. <laughs> we have excluded exclusion. Yeah. Yeah. It's really difficult. I, I, I mean, part of the way that I see the world, which is probably very simplistic, is that, that there is truth. And that because there is such a thing as truth, and there was truth before the Tower of Babel, God had imparted his truth to his people before, I mean, in, in the garden. And then that truth was carried with them, even through the flood, that truth was carried. And then the Tower of Babel, divides the people because the languages are divided but they each carry the truth with them then they go off to their locations wherever they're located and they are isolated communities with that piece of truth 
And as happens with propositions, they they switch shift over time. Yep. Maybe parts of them, it, you, you keep part of it, you dispose of part of it. And in every culture, certain parts were kept, certain parts were disposed of. But when, when Christ comes, he is the truth. He brings back the fullness, the wholeness of the truth. So the wholeness of the truth resides in Christ, but there is still pieces of truth everywhere else in all the other religions, all the other perspectives of the world. So of course there's wisdom in all those religions, but mm. the wholeness is in Christ. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I understand the perspective. Yeah. And as a Christian, I I, I think it's true, but I just feel that I've been wrong so many times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like I just, um, I try to be as respectful and and open and understanding. While I know that this is, are my... we called to that? To be respectful and open, of course, and understanding of course. and accepting, of regardless of whether a person care. Even even the people that you know, you, you said that you feel like that that the Muslim community exhibits so much more wisdom than the secular community. Yeah, but you're you're also being accepting and loving of the secular community, right? Of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, I mean, that's what we're called to. So yeah. that's what makes this time in our history so complicated. Yeah. Because, splintered. Everything's splintered. Yeah. And we feel splintered. It is like the Tower of Babel. Actually. Yeah. Well, I think we probably have to. Yeah, I know. Today, but um, I'm going to go what, to bed What soon. did you want to do for part two? Or are I want to go into school now. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I have summer, summer break. So reading a lot. Um, I wanted to dive into quantum physics, how Wolfgang solves the, the problems we've had with quantum physics. Like we struggle so much with understanding quantum physics, integrating it into a worldview. And basically through the current paradigm, you cannot understand it. No one understands it. But Wolfgang has a very brilliant way of, of making this very comprehensible. And with the cosmic icon that we showed before, mm-hmm. um, it'll make a lot of sense of that. So that's going to be the main theme, theme for, for episode two, I would say. And we'll go off on a lot of tangents, I think. Yeah. It's like today. So the quantum um, enigma. That sounds really good. Exactly. It's a book and he's got a documentary as well. Both are excellent. Um, yeah. So we'll yeah. we'll pick that up next week then. And in the meantime, if you could send me the uh, link for that Gitanjali, Gitanjali book of poems. Yeah. And I will also add the, the links for Kurt's talks and for my previous episodes with Wolfgang for people who want to learn more. Amazing. Thank you again. for. And, and also send me the link to your, your um, YouTube channel because I want to see your talk with your dad. Yeah, I had a talk with my brother as well. I think you'll you'll like both because he's a he's a bit of a philosopher. He's in the corner. He actually hosted Paul van der Klei when he was here oh. uh, in the Netherlands. So Paul knows uh-huh. him, and they've both been on Paul's channel before. So I think uh, I think some people will really enjoy that. So, so yeah, what, what city do you live in? I live in the Hague. So this is kind of like the political capital. You have the ICC here. We have a really good friend who is from the Netherlands and who lived here in California for a while. And then she 
was on a vacation in Greece and she met a guy from the Netherlands and they fell mm. in love and got married. So she moved back to the Netherlands. So she's lived there for like 20 years. So, well, wherever she is, she'll be close because this yeah. country is this big. <laughs> I'll have to see where she lives. Maybe, maybe you, you get into the estuary actually, because we have an estuary group in the Netherlands. If you, uh, if she's interested in that. I've, I'm so jealous of that. We don't have an estuary group yet in the Bay area. I mean, it's a I'm, tiny one, so we don't have much to boast about. But uh, <laughs> well, just being able to get together with people and talk about ideas like this would be so great. Yeah, right? it is really something special. Yeah. We have uh, so the last estuary meetings we've had is like three or four people, uh-huh. uh, one of which is my brother. <laughs> um, but it's been close by for me every time. And uh, it's very special because you're like you both have a lot of common ground mm-hmm. and it's it's really beautiful so we're continuing that we're working on it it's a bit of a struggle but if anyone's in the netherlands watching um you can contact me and uh, we can get you involved so well and i think eventually the key is going to be finding a way to not dumb down but to simplify the ideas enough to where somebody coming in from outside could get a grasp of that shared background so they could participate with you as well yeah yeah absolutely absolutely you'd be good at that at at this simplifying yes okay yeah we'll have a a go because you 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 took when i looked at all these books of wolfgangs and i went back to it again i got tied up on one page yeah and pretty soon my mind is going every which direction just on one page and then you took all eight books or whatever and 40 hours of videos and decided okay, here's the path through we're going to go this direction i hope uh, it was accessible but thank you yes it yeah. was very much so thank you so all right. much, Lucas. amazing i'm so excited yeah okay bye-bye thank you so much karen i'll see you soon